Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shambaugh, welcoming you to the November 29th, 2022 edition of Ask a Leader. Today, my guest for the full hour will be Brianne Dura Shawol, advocate, consultant, and lobbyist to speak about problem gambling across the nation and including on college campuses. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the show. My guest is Brianne Dura Shawol, founder and CEO of Dura Shawol Consulting LLC. Brianne previously was vice president of U.S. policy and strategic development of Epic Risk Management, an international global harm prevention consultancy. She most recently served as legislative director for the National Council on Problem Gambling. Her experience spans work with executive and legislative branch officials and private sector stakeholders at the international, federal, state, and local levels of government. She's posted achievements in the U.S. congressional legislative work pertaining, especially for our concerns today, complex problem gambling policy issues. Brianne works with Congress and many state legislatures and regulators to provide expert advice on gambling policy. She's been featured in numerous local, state, national, and international media, including CBC, ESPN, and CNBC. She produces the monthly podcast, NEDIG's Gambling Disorder Advocacy in Action. In 2019, she was appointed as a member of the Digital Gaming Advisory Group for the state of Hawaii and served on numerous coalitions. In 2020, she was a guest faculty member for Seton Hall Law School at their Gaming Law Compliance and Integrity Program. Prior to joining the NCPG, she served as Director of Policy and Communications for the Massachusetts Council on Compulsive Gambling. She also worked as the Associate Director of Operations and Development at the National Association of Development Companies in McLean, Virginia. Brianne is a member of the Digital Gaming Advisory Group, serves on the Board of Directors of Kenbridge Behavioral Health, and the National Institute of Lobbying Ethics. She completed her Bachelor's of Arts in Political Science at the University of Mary Washington. She comes to us today from Fairfax, Virginia. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Brianne Dura Shawol. Thank you so much for having me. Well, in a stunning series of articles published in the New York Times, a host of investigative journalists point out problem gambling and the enterprises pitching sports betting in so many arenas. Initially, that's what brought me to Brianne, who was quoted in the first in the series, and she contributed to sections of the series herself. My first aim was to cover the general picture, especially post-California statewide propositions, rejection by the population, 20, propositions 26 and 27. But the fourth installment leads me to zero mainly on college sports gaming. So let's start, Brianne, gambling, digital gambling is a problem. It's, a, it's public health, it hits, it's fiscal and it's social which I'd like for you to address today. So let's begin with the asymmetry of the funds available in the gambling sector versus 
the funds available to the entities that manage and regulate to protect public health and safety? Oh, sure. The disparities are pretty stark. You know, it wasn't until 2018 that we saw sports wagering legalized here in the U.S., and it was really left upon each state or tribal sovereign nation to make the decision whether or not this is something that they wanted to legalize. In the majority of these instances, we heard a tremendous amount about the opportunities to generate tax revenue, to generate jobs, and the amount of interest from consumers to participate within the product and the event and the offering. However, on the flip side, we often saw little to no considerations for the harm that may result from this product. And unfortunately, the U.S. is working from a deficit as the federal government currently attributes zero dollars for the recognition, research, or treatment from gambling addiction. So this is really left upon the states to ensure there is adequate and sufficient inclusion for funding. Each state has approached the funding of problem gambling services very differently. We've seen everything from no additional dollars at the time of legalization, the state of Montana and West Virginia, for instance. We've seen flat fees, such as the state of Michigan attributing a million dollars from the revenue of sports wagering, or New York with a $6 million appropriation to states that have chosen to do a percentage, Tennessee at 5% of the 20% luxury tax, and Virginia at 2.5% of the state revenue. By at large, though, when we look at the amount of revenue, the amount of money being wagered by the industry and compare that to the problem gambling, as I said at the, odd, I mean, the onset of this discussion, it's pretty stark. The entire United States contributes roughly $97 million to problem gambling services. Take the state of New Jersey, on a monthly basis, we're seeing close to a billion dollars wagered in sports betting. And that's just one tiny state. Uh, we saw revenue in the first 49 months of sports wagering tip the $10 billion scale. So that's pointing out the asymmetry that I want for people to think about as we'll eventually and soon transition into the arena of college sports. So, and now uh, the Proposition 26 and 27 enabled, were, were to enable gambling. And as you pointed out in preparation on the background, that 38 legislatures around the country have enabled these gambling platforms. So, uh, and I guess one thing as we go, it's both in the states as well as in, when we go into sports, that campus sports programs and uh, enabling the gambling that there's a kind of a Mason-Dixon line that's pretty wobbly, but th between where the college sports and are in, in enabling those enterprises on their campuses. So we'll, I just want to think that it's a patchwork, and then there's a Mason-Dixon line when we get to campuses that are capitalizing literally on this campaign. For those of you just joined us, my guest is Brianne Dora Shawol, founder and CEO of her firm, and she's a lobbyist for National Council on Problem Gambling. 
advocate for public health and fiscal responsibility, enabling measures toward digital gambling, sports betting with an emphasis on presence of college campuses. So the first aim was to cover the general picture of 26 and 27. They were turned down in California on the recent midterm election, but other states have enabled this. So I guess what I want to do is talk about, as you've talked about this asymmetry, is there are a number of things going on with this digital gambling problem, is how we've been predisposed to rely on a mobile device that connects us with various enterprise. It also has wired us for immediate kinds of transactions to take place. So if you could talk about the, let's say the, the brain in general, the consumption patterns in general, will transition to why young brains are even more susceptible as we talk about sports gaming. Sure. You know, just one point of clarification. So Proposition 26 uh, within California actually was only advocating for brick and mortar or physical sports betting opportunities. So you would have had to drive to your casinos to actually place your wager, where Proposition 27 was looking to potentially legalize mobile or online sports wagering. Of the 38 jurisdictions that currently have legalized sports wagering, 28 of those jurisdictions offer some iteration of online sports betting. And as you very succinctly point out, there's a lot happening to the brain and to dopamine rushes through this access and instant gratification when we see our wager either win or even lose in some ways. We're not having to wait for the entire game to play out in many of these jurisdictions where wagers are being offered on players, on the next pitch, on the next free throw. The amount of action that is being offered is unprecedented. And what this does to the brain is it really creates almost a slot effect where it is constantly reinforcing and glorifying and giving dopamine rushes for this action. When we're talking about the average individual who is interested in participating in sports wagering, we're tending to see younger males that are educated uh, and we're finding that they often will have means. But the truth is that according to an NCPG survey that's conducted around behaviors and attitudes surrounding fantasy and sports betting, that comparative to other forms of gamblers, sports bettors and fantasy players are twice to three times as likely to engage in problematic play. And some of that has to do with the age component of uh, the individual, and some of it has to do with the way that they are actually consuming sports wagering. But when we look at it from an age perspective, we're talking about brain development. The brain is not actually fully formed until around 25. And prior to this time, this lends itself to being more impulsive and not having the most rational, logical thoughts behind one's actions. I know for me, when I think of teens, I think impulsivity. And impulsivity is a very significant component to gambling disorder or even problematic gambling. 
Problematic gambling means you may not meet the criteria for gambling addiction, but it is in some ways causing harm to your life. And so when I think of sports wagering and who is being incentivized and who is being offered the products, I also am thinking about are they more predisposed or vulnerable to struggling with problematic gambling? Compile that with this element of ego and perceived skill that is often relied on heavily when we're marketing or talking about sports betting, and you're starting to talk about a perfect storm for problematic gambling. And in preparation, also, you were talking about the kind of labeling of what was previously considered an impulse control disorder, but it's really a gambling addiction. If you if you were queen of this kind of a, of a label to designate this, what label would you want? Because as you mentioned in background, there is a downside to further casting shame on this kind of disorder, and it makes the person more and more isolated in the hazards they're meeting. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the shame and stigma associated with gambling addiction is often what leads to two things. The fact that it can take men upwards of 20 years struggling and suffering in silence before they come forth to seek help. And it has led to a significant concern around suicide and suicidal ideations. In fact, some research suggests that individuals who are struggling with gambling addiction or problematic gambling might be upwards of 15 times more likely to attempt to take their own lives. Wow. Knowing these staggering facts, I would love to change the label or the name. I'd love to start making this person-centric. I'm not sure what that, that definition or those words are, right? But we all, as humans, at some point struggle with something. And research has me very encouraged that treatment works recovery is possible, that this is not a moral failure of a person. This is just a very misunderstood and often overlooked and not talked about true addiction. And you're worthy of hope and you're worthy of help. And how we convey that has not been done well. And some of that has to do with the fact it wasn't until 2013 that this became the addiction as we talk about it today, right? We turned to something known as the DSM, the Diagnostical Statistical Manual that talks about lots of different addictions, substance misuse, alcohol, and now gambling addiction. So in some respects, we're still a very new, air quotes, addiction. And I think that as this becomes more pressing of an issue, and as there's a lot more awareness generated by pieces like these in the New York Times, and as sports betting and other mobile gaming becomes more pervasive in our society, I am hopeful that we can start to move the language around this disorder to be person-centric and not a perpetuating stigmatized disorder. You were saying, Brianne, that you are encouraged by the research, but the distortions are a problem in that, that, as you said, fundamentally, 
the kind of financial package of the gambling enterprises around the states and as we move into the college sports models, that those, mo- those financial packages don't set aside very much resources to deal with what this addiction brings on. That's exactly right. It's one of my biggest frustrations when I look at the larger picture of this, or even when we drill down into the nuances of, say, college wagering, right? The reality is that even in the states that have been proactive and even generous in their contributions for problem gambling, the funding is often just delineated for prevention and treatment, and research is often a missing component to this. When we look at the body of literature here in the U.S., it is quite small. Now, some of that has to do with the fact that this is also a very new or relatively new type of gambling, but the majority of the responsibility needs to fall on the fact that there is simply not enough funding to be researching this to the extent that is necessary. I also hold, again, the federal government accountable in that they neglect to be researching and addressing this important public health issue. When I talk about the research that exists, when we talk about things like treatment works, recovery is possible, that there's different pathways to recovery, some of that research has to come from international jurisdictions that have made it a priority to research into this issue. So let's pivot all the way into the colleges with these enterprises on the campus and that there's sizable incentives for colleges to be doing this. And it's no thanks to the considerable decline in revenue attributable to the COVID pandemic. And we understand that when I'm saying college sports business model advisedly because that's it's all business now and it it's preying on the asymmetry of compensation among all the participants in the college sports it preys on future players expectations of even greater dividends for putting their bodies on the line and as it's become perceived on the campuses that sports is more entertainment it's trending as more of a gambling part of that and less and less about an education. So if you could take up those kind of asymmetries and the inequities of where all those resources earn from the the gambling enterprise on campuses, how those inequities are distorted. Oh, the inequities are absolutely distorted. I find the juxtaposition of the type of deals that are surrounding colleges and college wagering and sports betting to be fascinating, right? Let us not forget that sports wagering was legalized in 2018 through a Supreme Court decision uh, where it was the NCA that was fighting to prohibit sports wagering. Now, there's really two aspects to this that I think warrant discussion. The first is, we are starting to see the first of its kind deals with sports betting, things that we've never previously seen from the gambling industry, whether we're talking about casinos, lotteries, or other forms of gambling. And it is this 
interest from gambling entities to form partnerships or business deals with colleges. And you're right, COVID didn't do us any favors, whether we're talking about deals where states were desperate to get in new forms of revenue. Colleges too are struggling and looking for new ways to generate dollars. So we're seeing these gambling operations form deals with colleges. And it's been fascinating to see how each one manifests. In some regards, colleges are compensated every time a college student opens an account with a certain code for the gambling operator. In some of these deals, we're seeing just an opportunity for a gambling operator to have exclusive rights to market on campus and in stadiums. Remember, the type of individual we had talked about that is vulnerable, they're the type of person who's sitting in the stadiums watching the games, thinking that it might be a little bit more enjoyable with a little bit of extra, quote, skin in the game. A right? little more dopamine flooding. A little bit more dopamine, a little bit more thrill. And so we know that marketing works. They know where the consumers reside. And for those of us in the problem gambling, harm reduction, harm minimization space, it's worrisome because in some respects, these kids are underage, although it would be important to note here that there are some jurisdictions that allow 18-year-olds to place sports wagers, and in some, it's 21+. plus. Uh, it is considered a class three game, uh, just as though slots and table games are class three. Be it as it may, we do worry about the implications of excessive marketing incentives to be thrust upon a demographic that probably otherwise can't really be affording to expend a lot of dollars on a form of entertainment, right? When I talk about gambling, I talk about it as a form of entertainment that should be engaged in with money that you can afford to lose. Just like I go to the movie, I give my $20, I don't get it back whether I liked the movie or not, right? If I place a $20 sports bet, I really need to go in eyes wide open that this is not a way for me to make money. There's a good chance I'm going to lose it. But that's not how these are presented or marketed. There is this nature of sports betting that really relies heavily on talking about the skill and the advantage you can have. And you know your players. You got this. You can do it. Now, compound that with adding in replay and some promo dollars that get a young person spending more time and spending more money and really starting to become enamored with the platform. Link it back to the average college student being impulsive and not having a fully formed brain. And again, we're talking about a potentially dangerous situation. And the truth is, I'm not sure that all of the colleges were even aware of the implications of pushing something like gambling on their students or even through you know, association, right? Uh, they may not be incentivizing their kids to open an account, but they're certainly exposing them to lots of marketing materials. 
I'm not certain that colleges were even aware of the significant negative consequences this could lead to for their student population, let alone if the students are aware of it and or their parents. Well, there's also the pernicious aspect of the bandwidth that the problem gambling can be occupying in a student's mind or brain and that would invade the allotment of attention necessary for getting a good education. Not, Absolutely. We talked about the inequities of the, the players not getting their share of, of these dividends, but also the that's a zero sum, more time and tension on impulsive gambling, decreasing quality of education. I think that it's also very salient to talk about it for the college athlete, right? These are otherwise student athletes, and they need to also be able to go into the classroom and have a healthy robust college life through education, through socialization, friends, all of those things are seemingly compromised when these student athletes are being bet on. Whether that comes from pressure from their fellow students when they go in a class after they may have missed the game, they lost, and now the student sitting next to them is out $500. Oh my goodness. Whether they're worried about what they can disclose to their roommates or their hallmates, because that could be considered inside information that could change the lines or the prop bets. There's a whole other aspect where these student athletes now turn on the TV and they're seeing what the odds are on themselves. When we think about the students, I'm also worried about their mental health and how they're going to be able to navigate being bet on. I worry about it as well within the professional athletic communities. Uh, However, they often have a lot more resources and a much more isolated network, you know, where they can feel those external pressures a little bit easier. That being said, college students don't have that. And the real question is, are the colleges adequately prepared and thus preparing their student athletes to face this new world. There is a significant gap in what colleges are prepared to handle and are lacking in their ability to adequately support their students. For those of you who've just joined us, my guest is Brianne Dorshawal, founder and CEO of the Dorshawal Consulting Firm. And she's lobbyist for the National Council on Problem Gambling advocate for public health and fiscal responsibility in enabling measures towards digital gambling, sports betting with an emphasis on this program on the presence on college campuses. Well, it's enormous and I'm hoping that although you have a great deal more of research to bring to this, I think you're pointing out most, if not the largest share of the salient downfalls. Brian, what begs to be asked in this time that we're together today is your application and your dedication in this cause to protect society as a whole and the you know from these shortcomings protect campuses students is there a gambling story in your circle that's propelled you full on to reforming how this business is conducted thank you for asking i get asked this question a lot and i hope that is a direct result of the passion i have for this and the dedication for this issue I am personally not connected to someone who has struggled with problematic gambling 
or gambling addiction within my family or even my immediate friend base. However, over the last 10 years, I've had the distinct pleasure and privilege to work alongside so many individuals that have struggled and watched what their journey to recovery looks like. And each and every single one of them has touched my life and left an impression that will stay with me forever. And it really encourages me to bring that professional skill set that I have to the policymaking table for a community that has often never received a proper voice in the legislative and the regulatory system. And if I can leave this world in a little bit safer of a place and a little bit healthier and saved a life or two along the way, and all of the barriers and all of the struggles that we will face and we have faced will all be worth it. But it is I who am most humbly uh, am gratified and touched by the outpouring of support that I receive through my work and my quest to really help better protect folks from legalized gambling and even illegal gambling struggles, even though I don't have that personal journey. So we need to wrap this time together on this heady, heady topic. It's I really recommend people look up the New York Times, very extensive series. In the printed version, it's several pages each over four days. So it's online. I have no idea how big it is, but it's it's really worth reviewing the whole thing for people to understand all the institutions literally, figuratively colliding here in this enterprise. So the last question would be, Brian, about what are the essential takeaways that are getting missed in the larger public debate? What do we have the capacity to do as individual voters and constituents in this broader setting to protect those that are at risk of problem gambling? So I think first and most importantly is to be talking about this, to be mindful of the fact that there are 8 million Americans that are currently struggling with problematic gambling and openly talking about it and assuring folks that if they are struggling, that hope and help exist, empowering yourself with information about the National Problem Gambling Helpline, that's 1-800-GAMBLER. And this is a number that will make sure that people are directed to help wherever they live. Number two, as voters, as strong community members, as participants in higher education, whatever it is, about holding people accountable to incorporating and adopting policies and considerations for problematic gambling whenever you're talking about gambling in general. I like to say that every piece of legislation that is filed around gambling, sports betting, iCasino, lottery, you name it, is an opportunity to also be talking about problem gambling and more resources. So be mindful of what you're voting for. Be mindful if there are these things that are being accounted for and are they sufficient. And urging your elected officials to be doing more because it really does come at a significant cost, both 
in economic terms, but also socially. Remember, this is of all the addictions, the one that carries the highest suicide rate. So as I like to say, be thinking before you act because it comes with a human cost. Well, part of the holding elected officials accountable, not just in the legislative arena, but in the campaigning arena where it may or may not be clear whether their donors are in this the gambling enterprise sector. Of course, I think when we look at who is talking about this issue, who's looking to move an initiative forward, Look, the truth is I'm not against legalized gambling. I'm neutral on this. But I believe if you are going to legalize something that carries with it a risk of harm, irrespective of how few or how many people will be harmed is irrelevant to me. There are still considerations that must be made. And that includes a proper funding mechanism for the research, prevention, treatment, and recovery of gambling addiction. And so it's not just about the players, right, in any campaign. It's also about what they're willing to do, or in some cases not do, as part of that deal. Are there, Brianne, best practices, models existing in this USA that can be applied, can be held up as a model to other places where the debates are unfolding around further enabling? I love this question because I get to brag a little about my home, uh, Massachusetts. So Massachusetts is by far one of the nation and globally leading jurisdictions when it comes to addressing problem gambling. They address it through more than adequate funding. They have a comprehensive ongoing research agenda looking into the prevalence of gambling addiction, how it's morphing over time and with new forms of gambling. They have someone in the gaming commission and the regulators office who just deals with things around problem gambling. They have both outpatient and exhaustive inpatient opportunities for treatment. They have recovery supports. They do uh, prevention work within schools. And they too uh, recently decided to legalize sports wagering. And yet, instead of being very aggressive into opening up the market, they've decided to commission roundtables with experts from all over the world talking about best practices to reduce the harm from sports wagering as they move to the market. It has been truly nothing short of impressive. When I think of the grown-ups in the room, Massachusetts comes top to mind. So I'm I'm concerned that Massachusetts, it's not getting its due as a model in the coverage in the New York Times and in the, the literature around California's Propositions 26 and 27. Is that true? It's just not oh, showing it's up. absolutely true. But there's really significant reason for that. You asked me what I thought was a gold standard. That's going to be very different than maybe what the industry considers to be a gold standard, which if I were to imagine would be, let's say, New Jersey. I hear it all the time. They're the gold standard because they have the third largest, most profitable sports betting market, actually third in the world, you know third to the UK, and I'm, I'm not certain on the second, I apologize, but 
my priorities when it relates to being the gold standard really looks at this from a harm reduction, harm prevention aspect, not just a flourishing economic market. Massachusetts has not yet operationalized. We're looking at Q1 of 2023. So perhaps when I anticipate you all see another ballot initiative, maybe folks will start talking more about Massachusetts. As I am very well aware that there was an emphasis on mental health and homelessness as a component to the two props discussed. Hopefully they can maybe learn from Massachusetts and seeing how being very aggressive in addressing these issues from the start is really advantageous to potentially also getting your legalization over the line. And what is Massachusetts disposition on college sports betting? So actually, college sports betting was the Achilles heel of the Massachusetts bill. There was much contention around whether or not the state was going to allow for wagering on colleges, college sports, college students. And it really wasn't solidified until the very last day of the legislative session. And there were some exceptions. There was not an outright ban on college wagering. That being said, they do have more restrictions on college wagering than other markets. And while I find it to be admirable that states are talking about this and talking about what is and is not appropriate, for me, the reality is more in the pragmatic side here that the first state that went ahead and legalized unlimited, unrestricted college wagering really opened up all college students to facing those mental health concerns and other struggles that I noted earlier around being wagered on. We also know that athletes themselves can be upwards of four times more likely to struggle with problematic gambling or gambling addiction themselves. Regardless uh, of sorry. what sport, over over the all the sports that you're aware of? Over all the sports, yes. Okay, it's that's important. More about their personality, their genetic, their dispositions. There's a whole host of bio environmental factors that play into this, but athletes in general could be upwards of four times more likely. So, you know, and that's not a part of the program either, though, in terms of that's not probably a line item in the sports programs budgets to address that. No, not at all. But actually, it is worth noting that the NCAA in partnership with Epic Risk Management is starting to do trainings and educational programs for student athletes around their higher risk for problematic gambling. Now, and I would attribute that even without any evidence, I would attribute that because there were people that were seeing what was happening and they were, that is an act, that is evidence of somebody holding at a large institution like the NCAA accountable. That had to be what's gone on. Well, I was uh, really privileged to be a part of bringing that together. I was okay. at Epic at the time and also had dear friends and colleagues over at the NCA that have taken this issue very seriously for quite some time. And it was just a matter of 
finding the appropriate type of educational program to bring forth. And it's really a powerful thing. And what's so incredible with the gentlemen who work at Epic is they all have a lived experience story, as they call it. This is a former athlete who they themselves have struggled with gambling addiction in the past during their time in athletics. And they share with the students a little bit about what that journey looked like and how they entered into recovery and got into the work that they do every day. So Brianna, uh, I'm interested in how the NCAA was, when you all, you are various entities approached them about the need for risk assessment, risk management, was there a resistance? And they're saying, no, we've got this. We're, we don't need any additional kind of consideration here. Was, was there some resistance that you had to really no, take No, I don't think it's about resistance. I think it's about education, right? This is still very new. And so I think that from both an NCA standpoint, an individual college standpoint, a lot of times it's not a matter or thinking of, oh, we can handle this. It's, oh, we don't understand why we have to be handling this. But the NCA really was very open and receptive and understanding that this is something that their students are facing. And they are also talking very seriously, not just about that increased risk for gambling addiction amongst their students. They're also now having very serious discussions about overall mental health and well-being of these athletes, even if they aren't gambling themselves, they are still having to face gambling, like we were talking about through prop bets, turning on the TV, harassment from other students. And I do believe that the NCA and the other leagues and professional teams are starting to get more serious with every passing day that this is an issue they have to address. Has it happened as quickly as I'd like? No. Am I thinking that it is something that will come to fruition? I can only continue to hope. Well, I have to ask, coming from UC Irvine, where Radio KUCI is based, is our previous chancellor, Michael Drake, became a member of the NCA board and uh, was at Ohio State University as the president at that time before he came back to the UC system to be the president. Was Michael Drake involved? Was he on hand in terms of building up some of these risk assessment and other needs of students throughout the campuses? I was never privy to any of the board meetings or discussions, but from those individuals that I had the pleasure of working with within the NCA, everybody seemed to talk all the time about how important of an issue this was, and they were very keen on learning what more they needed to be doing. So I never got word that there was resistance or questions. It always came across as a very unified, encouraging vote. So in the Massachusetts model, can you put this on some sort of time frame? How long ago and over what length of time did it take to build what they have as the sort of gold standard? Sure. So uh, Massachusetts traditionally was a state that didn't have any significant legal gambling. It wasn't actually until 2011 that the state had legalized casino gambling. Here are just a few of the states that have no restrictions. This is crazy. Montana, Wyoming, North Dakota, Nevada, 
Arizona, New Mexico, Mississippi, Louisiana, Michigan, Pennsylvania, North Carolina. So there's so many of them. I started my work in Massachusetts in 2013. And at that point, it had been several years and casinos were just starting to really come to fruition and be opened. What really was most impressive about Massachusetts is their research agenda called for the state to examine the social and economic implications of gambling expansion before it even happened. They wanted a baseline. What were things like rates of crime? What was the prevalence of gambling addiction? Things of that nature needed a baseline before gambling even entered into the jurisdiction. And so then that's, important, that's an important part of its gambling DNA then. There wasn't any existing history of, of the enterprise. Exactly. And then as things got moving and built up or relatively small state, right? And it, uh, the legislation allowed for three casinos with one uh, potential tribal casino, uh, which has not yet been built or even authorized. But nonetheless, as things started to expand, there were different benchmarks through the research that we could point to if there was an increase or any change whatsoever in the social and economic results of this decision. And I really feel as though it served the state in so many ways where other states never really had an appreciation for what was happening. And if they added to it, it would only exacerbate any problems. And by that, I mean this. There was some research that was conducted not that long ago that showed that any time a new form of legalized gambling entered into a market, so too will the problems increase. And so, unfortunately, if you don't have an understanding of where your problems are starting from, and if you're adequately addressing them, you could be compounding the issues by adding more to it and not addressing it. I hope that makes sense. So a state that's a great example of how this is created quite a concern is Illinois. Illinois, a state that had traditionally ranked one of the worst in the nation in problem gambling investments. And at the time that they legalized sports wagering, again, there was not a lot of considerations for problem gambling, but we fought hard and we fought long and we were able to get some research done around the prevalence of gambling disorder. And they learned that after the legalization of sports wagering, that about 14% of the population in Illinois either currently struggles with a gambling problem or is at significant high risk for developing one. Uh, you know, we like to say that the national average is about 2% of the population. So these numbers are quite staggering. And the fear is that, and they'll never really be able to know what it was that was the impetus for this significant surge or these very high rates, but that they legalized yet another form of gambling in the state and didn't aggressively address problem gambling at that time. 
And now they've created an even bigger problem. Now, that being said, Illinois has tried to make right for their wrongdoings. They have made significant financial contributions to addressing problem gambling. I've had the pleasure of being out in Illinois, meeting with the nonprofits working on this, also meeting with the state health departments that are trying to build up programs, and they're really starting to move in a positive way. That being said, they may have not been in this position if the policymakers had made considerations for this at the time they talked about legalizing gambling. This is the general picture about problem gambling. It's not only talking about the campuses, and I'm mindful of that and remind listeners that with problem gambling on the campuses, unaddressed problem gambling, how does that continue out as young people, young gamblers, move on from the college area. Do you have research yet about what that means post-college for their kind of gambling risks, habits and all? No, we don't, but we do know for certain that young individuals who are exposed to gambling and engaging with gambling before they should are four times more likely to struggle with problematic gambling. So while we don't have a significant piece of research right now to point to exactly what's going to happen. The body of research we have prior to sports betting around gambling and youths and gambling participation, it does show that there is significant concern to be had. And remember, it's not just about the financial component to this, which I'm also worried about, you know, what does this mean for financial literacy? How equipped are individuals who have been gambling regularly as a way to make money or, you know, um, blow discretionary income if they would continue after college? Sure, I'm worried about that. But it's also about how much time they became accustomed to allowing these products to consume their lives. And when we move on from college and you're entering the workforce and you're settling down and having a family, it's easier said than done to maybe break some of those very reinforced and potentially problematic behaviors. You know, this is where having those supports and treatment providers can really come in handy. And while there is aggressive marketing out there for sports betting products, there is not nearly enough marketing out there to tell college students and otherwise the general public where they can get help if they find themselves struggling. It's recurrent throughout all of the gambling enterprises that the business lobbyists are always assuring college campuses and state legislatures that these are manageable problems and it will be sorted out. Is that not a common refrain that you are seeing in the way they're oh it's absolutely a common theme that i encounter both you know when i'm lobbying in conversations afterwards the focus for so long i say so long it's been about four years but throughout has been let's just open this up consumers want it it's happening on the black market we can address any problems that come, but this is still safer, it's regulated, let's just get to market. And I like to say that sometimes 
it's worth the wait if we do it correctly so we're not having to face going back and trying to fix something that's happened. It's definitely a very different approach, but yes, I hear that all the time that these are manageable harms or consequences. Sometimes we hear lobbyists and other individuals from gambling entities deny any ills that could come up and that their commitments to responsible gambling are adequate enough. But, you know, while I appreciate that they will sometimes talk about people forming an addiction on the black market and that there's no referral over to treatment or help, and that may be true, plenty of individuals do develop a problem in the legal market. And so I like to say that having a Gambling license is a privilege, and part of that privilege is really being very aggressive in ensuring that we are reducing the number of incidents of harm all across the board and not just saying, well, it's better than the black market. And that kind of aggressive paired with the very aggressive pursuit of getting a business adopted, period. So I guess two analogies occur to me, and you can take issue in any way you wish, but it's kind of the vaping of tobacco products introduced to young people, or it's the kind of neurotransmission that's overtaken by an opioid that it forever is going to reset, can reset that addiction pattern, neurologically speaking, that can encumber that individual's mental and intellectual health. Yeah, absolutely. I don't take objection. I mean, when I talk about gambling with anyone, I talk about it the way I talk to things like alcohol or tobacco, right? As even starting as young as children, we're very aware that if we take that sip of alcohol, we take that puff of a cigarette, or in this case, vaping, that it comes with risk, that we might become addicted. But how many people really think think about placing a bet as being something that carries risk. Probably not that many. You know, when I go in and I do trainings with operators or when I talk to policymakers, I always like to say, if I were to ask this room and I said, what is responsible drinking? You probably all come up with some close variation of what it means. But when I say, what is gambling responsibly? Very few people have any idea about what that means or what that looks like, or even if that's achievable. And it really highlights and reinforces that we have to be doing better with our children and with our college students to be talking about this issue. Frankly, if we're only talking about gambling, with college students, then we've we've hit it too late. We need to start addressing this at a younger age. As it becomes more pervasive and normalized in our culture, so too do we need to be normalizing talking about gambling and problematic gambling and that it's only appropriate when you're an adult. So, Brianne, this has been so instructive and I really appreciate the heft of all of your work and your advocacy and your time with us today on Ask a Leader. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been a true pleasure. And thank you for talking about 
hard stuff and important topics like this. My guest was Brianne Dura Shawol, founder and CEO of Dura Shawol Consulting LLC and a lobbyist for National Council on Problem Gambling and advocacy for sound public policy to address the risks in problem gambling. The extended portion of this interview is available on askaleader.com. Well, that's my wrap. Next week, returning to the show will be Professor Emily Penner at UCI School of Education. She'll speak to the theme of pedagogy, not politics, concerning her latest research on ethnic studies. Talk with you next week. Thank you for listening, everyone.